Today's episode is brought to you by La Hacienda. I'm joined today by the founder and CEO of La Hacienda, Gonzalo Veloz. Hi, Gonz. Hi, Sean. Good to see you. Gonz, when I was looking to give a facelift to the operations podcast brand, I came to you and your team, but you guys do much more than just podcast cover art. Can you tell folks what La Hacienda does? Yes. So La Hacienda, I mean, beyond being an agency, La Hacienda is a place for great ideas and creative innovation. We do branding, creative strategy, media production, you name it. We're a digital agency with the mission to help brands and companies reach their goals. We do video production, graphic design, motion design, and marketing strategy services. And yeah, we just want to work with many brands and cool people. Uh, I can speak from experience. I've worked with Gons in the past, and I think the visuals for the Operations Podcast speak for themselves as well. Folks should definitely be reaching out to him and his team. Gons, where can people go to learn more about La Hacienda? La Hacienda, we can, you can find us on the internets going to lahacienda.media. That's lahacienda.media, not .com, not .anything, .media. And then in social media, you can find us on Instagram and TikTok at La Hacienda underscore media. everyone, welcome to Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies in hypergrowth. My name is Sean Lane. Venture capital firms are often the thought leaders, the tastemakers when it comes to new technologies, new trends, new ways of doing business. So it's a bit odd that an industry that espouses efficiency doesn't really invest in internal efficiencies for themselves. Which brings us to the topic of VC operations. What exactly does operations look like inside of a venture capital firm? Luckily for us, to help us answer that question, we're joined by someone who has been studying this very topic for years, Hallie Kaplan-Allen. Hallie is the Director of Growth at Sidecar, a deal execution platform for venture investors. And she actually spent part of her career in revenue operations, so she uniquely understands both the VC perspective and the operations perspective. In our conversation, Hallie and I talk about why VCs don't typically invest in operations. We explore the differences between front office versus back office ops, and why when Hallie couldn't find anyone else talking about VC operations, she started a newsletter about it herself. To start though, I personally have no idea what a VC firm actually needs internally when it comes to operations, so I asked Hallie. I have to start by saying I've also never worked at a VC firm. And I say that and I like to think that it's actually an advantage in talking about all of this stuff, but always feel like I have to caveat it. (laughs) Maybe that's the imposter syndrome speaking, but a lot, a lot is involved with VC operations. So when people think about VC, people who, who are at all familiar with it, you know, they're investing into companies and it can be really exciting and sexy and there's kind of an awareness of some operational pieces like the work that you have to do to find the companies that you want to invest in. But there's a lot that's under the hood. In fact, most of it's under the hood. I think VC in a lot of ways is kind of like an iceberg, right? So what's under the hood is what's referred to often as like the back office or kind of like fund administration. And that involves legal, accounting, tax, and just general admin activities. And so when you're putting together an investment into a private company, 
you know, it's, it's different than how we know to invest in public companies today where you can do it through an app and it's a couple clicks of a button. You're putting together legal docs. You're tracking the way that money moves in and out of a bank account. You're opening bank accounts, closing bank accounts, sending wire instructions, following up on wire instructions, following up with people who haven't responded to an email or haven't signed their documents or signed their documents wrong. And then that's all that's just involved in actually making the investment, sending the money to the company. If you're a good investor, there's a lot that's involved after that too. So you're managing your investment over time. Of course, you're supporting the company that you invested in, but you're also communicating with the investors who participated with you in that investment. And you're handling or coordinating things like tax accounting requirements. So when you make an investment to a private company, you have to file you know, your tax returns in a specific way every year. If you're making money off of those investments, you have to often provide financial statements or financial reports of a certain type to the investors that are participating in the investment that are investing into your fund. So the not so short answer is that there's a lot involved and it's a lot of coordination often between different people, different parties, different service providers in a lot of cases. And so a lot of moving pieces at any given point in time. So I want to talk about that coordination piece because this may sound like a very naive question, but like who does all that, right? Like who does that laundry list of things that you just mentioned inside of the firm itself? So it really varies. And in a lot of cases, it varies on the size of the firm. So in some cases, you know, you're handling all of this stuff internally. So at a really, really big venture firm, you might actually have all of those different coordination players internally. So you have a lawyer internally, you have an accountant or multiple accountants internally, tax advisors, etc. Of course, that is very expensive. So when you're making money or you're making money to pay people's salary at a venture firm that's coming out of your management fees and your management fees are typically a certain percent, often 2% of the overall size of the fund that you're managing. And so, you know, you can do the math, but if your fund is $5 million, $10 million, you probably don't have the capital to actually pay these service providers internally. So if you're an emerging fund manager, if you're someone with a smaller fund that doesn't have the capital or, or necessarily even the need to employ those people all internally, then you're likely outsourcing those functions, like I said before, to professional service providers that you're paying for contract or part-time work. And that's where the coordination piece really comes into play. And the answer to who is responsible for managing that is oftentimes no one. So, you know, if you're a solo GP who's managing a fund of a couple million dollars, once again, you might not have the money to pay someone to coordinate all of those pieces Your team is probably very small, very lean. You might have an associate or an analyst or a couple part-time folks involved with helping kind of run your fund. And maybe one of those people is spending a portion of their time on this coordination piece. But often that is someone who also has other responsibilities, whether it's helping to source deals, helping to diligence deals. You rarely see someone in a smaller firm, at least, who has a full-time role relating to operations, because, you know, that's not really why people get into VCs, not to manage the operations, it's to invest or to find companies to invest in to support those companies. And so oftentimes, it's kind of like deprioritized as this like, back burner thing of like, 
you're primarily focused on finding investments, supporting companies. And then there's this other piece where we kind of have to think about how we're coordinating and following up with all of our service providers, but it's really not prioritized. Not prioritizing operations until it's too late. Maybe operations in software companies is more similar to operations at VC firms than I thought. We've gone through enough of an evolution in software companies now that operations, I think, has secured its place as not just a necessity, but as a growth driver that can, when done properly, actually make you more money. So I asked Hallie, are the VCs that have been espousing the value of revenue operations going to look in the mirror and give this advice to themselves as well? A lot of people make this like joke that VCs aren't eating their own dog food because to your point, VCs are the ones who are supposed to be on the cutting edge of innovation and they're investing into this incredible, disruptive, groundbreaking technology. Like VCs are the ones who created companies like Airtable and Notion and not really Zapier because they kind of bootstrapped, which is awesome, but like (laughs) these incredible automation tools, they literally help to create categories like CRMs to a certain extent, customer success, marketing automation tools, like these are all companies and categories that are completely funded by VCs. And yet there's very little of that kind of disruptive, innovative thinking in the tools that VCs themselves use. That's at least historically. And where that comes from, I would think is the fact that VC has been dominated historically by large firms, legacy firms that are hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. And so going back to that topic of management fees, you know, if your fund is a billion dollars, your 2% management fee is looking pretty generous. And so you actually do have the capital to pay a bunch of staff members, full-time staff members to kind of handle this stuff. And it doesn't really necessarily need to be efficient. So going back to the topic of like who handles this stuff internally at these larger firms, there's really no lack of people of kind of like manpower to throw at these operational problems. And it's not too dissimilar to how technology companies or startups maybe looked a couple decades ago where you needed more money, you needed hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars to start up a company because there are all these costs associated with doing so until more software tooling came about that made it more efficient. And so I think this problem exists from basically the players not having to be scrappy or resourceful historically. And there is a shift happening there the same way that it's occurred in software companies where startups can now kind of like come into existence with a couple hundred thousand dollars. They can really like build a product and have a team that operates that product fairly efficiently. The same thing's happening in venture where you have these emerging managers raising smaller funds and they are starting to, you know, out of a need, out of resourcefulness, like look for ways to operate more efficiently, whether that's by leveraging existing tooling or building tooling or even just outside of the tooling, like having someone think about this stuff, invest in like systems and operational processes up front so that, you know, it's the kind of like age old thing of, Sometimes you do have to spend time, invest that time up front to build processes, build systems, and it may not feel important or urgent in the moment, but you end up saving your time by investing that time up front. What strikes me about Hallie's descriptions here is that this isn't some small, negligible list of tasks. There are a lot of different activities within a fund that you could designate as, quote, operations. And from her vantage point, 
even the smallest funds led by these emerging fund managers are leveraging new tools, new technologies available to them to invest in these operational systems up front. Hallie is my kind of marketer because she herself became so enthralled in this concept of VC operations a few years ago that she started a newsletter dedicated to the topic. It was called Auto Matter, and it was described as a newsletter about processes and the people who automate them. Not unique to VC, like it's anything I think could be done more efficiently or intentionally if you think about it, any kind of workflow or process. And the perspective that I came to all of this from was having a background in revenue operations and then kind of like being introduced to the world of VC and noticing some of this stuff. And so a lot of the things that I kind of focused on when I was writing this newsletter and consulting with some smaller VCs was things that reflect the workflows that we would build or the automations that we would build from a revenue operations perspective. So it's things surrounding a CRM, it's things surrounding kind of like how you interact with external parties. So in the context of RevOps, that may be how a sales team interacts with their customers or prospective customers. And in the context of VC, that's how a fund manager or investor interacts with portfolio companies or companies that they potentially want to invest in. It's really sales, like VC is sales in a lot of ways. It's actually sales on two sides, because if you're a VC, you're kind of selling yourself to the companies that you want to invest in. And you're also selling yourself to the investors that you want to support or invest into your fund. And so there's this opportunity to leverage a CRM on both sides of that dynamic in a very similar way as you would if you were, like I said, a salesperson managing a pipeline. It literally is a pipeline. When you're a VC, you have a pipeline of companies that you're talking to. They move through stages. The stages look a little bit different, but like the workflow is very similar. And what's cool about that is you don't even necessarily need to look to or build custom tools for the VC industry, especially when you know now you're getting all of these CRM type tools that are very flexible. And of course, there's Salesforce and HubSpot, which are built more so for like a traditional SaaS kind of sales process. But then you have Airtable, which can be leveraged as a CRM in like a very flexible way, in a way that doesn't require an insane amount of kind of setup up front and can be tweaked very minimally to fit the workflow of a VC versus a true salesperson. And so that's the kind of stuff that I focused on when I was starting out writing this newsletter, because that's what was familiar to me coming from the world of revenue operations. It's just a different type of customer journey, right? Like it's the exact same thing. Like you're mapping out the different kind of conversion points or handoffs or, you know, inflection points in that customer journey and trying to reduce friction in order to get that deal done. 100%. And you're collecting data at each stage of the way, just like you would if you were trying to build a relationship with the prospective customer. If I extend that out a little bit, like, does that extend all the way to like how you might source deals, right? The same way you might prospect inside of an organization that's, you know, more of a SaaS thing. Like, hey, these are our, these are our target accounts. Like, these are the ones that we're going after to try and source, you know, potential deals from. Yeah, if you're a good investor, I would say it does. <laughs> it's it's interesting because the way that deals are sourced and I mean even that term is probably a little bit jargony, but like the way that investors find companies to invest in historically has been very network-based, very behind closed doors and what that's led to is like 
a complete disproportionate landscape of the companies or the really the founders that get investment versus those that don't. And, you know, there's this concept of like pattern matching that's often talked about in VC, where when investors historically are looking for companies to invest in, they're basically just looking for founders that look the same way that the founders of Apple or Google look or Uber or Airbnb. And, you know, it is like white college educated men who went to specific schools and live in San Francisco. And of course, you know, I just named a couple companies that have done incredibly, and I'm sure any of the investors who participated in those early rounds don't regret their decisions. But that doesn't mean that every good company or every good founder moving forward is going to look that way. And so if you're only looking for companies sourcing deals based on this kind of like pattern matching approach, then you're definitely missing out on a huge number of potential really like valuable companies or valuable opportunities. And so building processes that allow, but, but of course, on the other hand, you as an investor, especially as a solo GP or someone with a very small team, you're not working with unlimited resources or time to find and diligence companies. And so you need some sort of framework to find companies that are going to be, you know, exciting and the good fit for whatever your investment thesis is. And so there are all sorts of tools, you know, on the on the more like later stage and private equity type investing, like there are tons of tools and databases that are used to find opportunities. But there's also a huge opportunity for that to happen at the earlier stages. There are so many startups, I don't have figures on this, that are created every single year. And you can't expect one fund manager to sift through every single opportunity that exists out there that matches their thesis. But yeah, people are building tools that help with this. Obviously, AI is like hugely relevant here in the same way that it might be if you were prospecting or building a list as a traditional salesperson. This episode is brought to you by La Hacienda. La Hacienda is a place for great ideas and creative innovation. Branding, creative strategy, media production, you name it. I went to the team at La Hacienda when I was looking to give a facelift for our brand here on the Operations Podcast, and they hit it out of the park. La Hacienda's goal is to make impactful online and brand presences for their clients. So if you're in need of a full-service digital creative agency, check out lahacienda.media today. Okay, back to Hallie. Before the break, Hallie was talking about the emergence of smaller fund managers and the wave of the new tools that are available to them in building their funds. But these are usually pretty small firms in terms of headcount, so they might be hesitant to dedicate any sort of resources to the internal operating rhythms or internal operating systems. After all, they're trying to find that next big investment, support their portfolio companies, not create the world's best standard operating procedure. So what's the pitch for them that this operational work is worthy of their time? And what are some early wins that they can achieve? I don't give myself credit really for convincing people of this. I actually think that the industry has completely come around to the importance of this over the past couple of years. I started writing the newsletter three years ago, and I wrote it coming from a place of having scoured the internet and specifically VC Twitter and not having found basically anyone who was talking about operations and specifically efficient operations for VC. And I give myself little to no credit, but in the past three years, it really does feel like that has shifted. 
it's funny. I like for a while kept a kind of like an ongoing Twitter thread where I would just post every time I came across something that kind of like resonated or felt like it was tapping into the space. So anytime I saw a VC hiring for a role that was like operations, no code operations, systems analyst, systems manager, I would get super excited and like keep a running list. And then it got to the point where it became such a regular thing that I stopped being able to actually keep a running list, which is great. It's exciting to see. And I don't think, like we talked about earlier, a similar shift happened in startups or companies at a certain point in time. Like it wasn't always this way where you have rev ops and marketing ops and sales ops. Like, so I think it's just something that's taken time to take off. And I would say the reason for that is because of these emerging managers Kind of like I said, they just have to be scrappier with the management fees that they have, with the limited time and resources that they have. And so when I'm talking to folks about, you know, where can you start? I think there are two buckets. One is on some of the stuff that I just touched on, the CRMs, like have a CRM. It's just too easy. Airtable is free up to a certain point and you can basically use it out of the box. It'll be better if you spend some time customizing it and tweaking it to track the things you want to track, but you can basically get started. Just put the data somewhere. And like, if it's a Google doc, that's worse, but it's still somewhere. Don't just have it in email, like put it somewhere. And then as you collect data, you'll see the value of it and you'll be more motivated to invest into building things out in a way that's like super helpful. Not to plug myself, but like we did do a, a version of the newsletter, an edition of the newsletter, where we talked about building out an Airtable CRM as an investor. And like I said, it's, I think we even have a template. Like it's so easy. Cool. We'll link to that. Yeah, we'll link to it. It's out there somewhere. And then the other side is thinking about what you can outsource. And you know, a lot of the stuff that I've talked about so far is more what I would call like the front office of VC. So like relationship management and external facing stuff with LPs and portfolio companies. But then going back to all the back office stuff, legal, tax, accounting, a lot of this stuff just has to be outsourced because you have to work with a lawyer. You have to work with an accounting professional. These people have certifications and degrees for a reason, but there are options and solutions to do that that aren't going to cost you $300 an hour or whatever these like big Silicon Valley lawyers charge. I think it's like three times that. I think $300 is pretty modest, but <laughs> yeah. And and then, you know, not to have another like self plug, but that this is why Sidecar exists, right? Is because like, if you have to be scrappy and, and resourceful and look to external parties to support some of this stuff, yeah, you have the option of paying an incredible amount for lawyers if you kind of want to build things from scratch. But what people are realizing increasingly is you don't have to build things from scratch. And so there's an opportunity to work with like truly a partner like Sidecar, you know, we're a fund administrator in the most scientific dulled down version, but we really like to think of ourselves as a partner to emerging fund managers who, like I said before, they're not paying a lawyer, an accountant, a tax advisor full-time to be part of their firm because they don't need that. They don't need the full-time, but they need a partner in those categories at least part of the time. And so outsourcing that stuff, of course, to a company that thinks about this stuff from the perspective of efficiency and automation and streamlined processes is a way to take a lot of this stuff off of your plate so that you can focus on supporting founders and making investments. 
I think those are some awesome use cases that people can take, build, have as kind of their starting point. A question I get asked all the time is like, when should I invest in RevOps? Like, when should I make that first hire at my company? And like, to your point, if this is a one person emerging fund, like they're on their own, like it's probably not ready for to have a full-time dedicated person for that. But for some of those bigger firms that you were mentioning before, is there kind of like an inflection point that you think might naturally lend itself to say, okay, it's time to have some version of an internal ops team and the size or the scope of the portfolio warrants it? That's such a good question. I don't know if I've thought about it in terms of like a specific number. There's probably like a parallel way that you can think about it to how you think about it for a company, which is like maybe there's an AUM, like maybe there's an amount of money that you're managing, or maybe it's a number of companies that you've invested in where it does make sense. And similarly to how in a company you might invest in RevOps when you get to a certain ARR. And then maybe it's, you know, thinking about it in terms of of headcount of how you're growing your team. So I think there's kind of like a clear path, although it's not really quite a playbook for fund managers as they scale to say, if you're a solo GP, you know, maybe when you start out, you have one associate that's kind of supporting you part-time and then they go to full-time and then you, you know, hire another person that can be more focused on sourcing versus due diligence or whatever, like start to specialize. And then what I've seen a lot with some of these smaller firms that are just starting to scale is that the first real like operational person that they bring on is a CFO, which is like a pretty, you know, like high level title to be maybe like the fourth or fifth or sixth person that's joining a firm. And I think it can work if you have a CFO who is really down to be in the weeds. This isn't like a a CFO at like a series C startup. It's kind of like a, a sexy glamorous title with the team of 20 or 30 people under them. But if you have someone who's really down to get in the weeds, but also has the expertise, that's actually a really good way to start to build out an operational muscle or function internally. And then the other option, which I think is really such a good fit for smaller managers, especially because, you know, at smaller to mid managers, especially because a lot of these people are never going to scale and don't want to scale to the point of having a full ops team internally is to think about like fractional operators. So there are actually a lot of both kind of like organizations, agencies, firms, or just individuals who will do this type of work across a number of different VCs. And there are a ton of benefits to that because you have someone who's kind of seeing a variety of situations, seeing across the landscape and can apply best practices and learnings across multiple different firms rather than just seeing this like one narrow perspective. So I think that's, probably one of the best approaches is is to look to some of these like fractional operating groups who have expertise around the back office functions. And of course, if you get to the point where you're scaling to needing to bring someone on internally from there, like that's great. And that fractional operator can help you bring on the person who's going to be the right fit for your firm. Yeah, it's a good way for them to like dip their toe in the water. And I think the prerequisite to that, right, is that aha moment that you're talking about where you have to look in the mirror and say, oh, like this thing that I tell all my portfolio companies they need, I might need that as well, right? And so I think when that light bulb moment happens, maybe you start fractional and you can work your way up. The light bulb moment is probably going to be caused by something going wrong, to be honest. like 100%. It's not dissimilar to startups. 
you know, you're not going to get your K-1s out on time or there's going to be an error in a legal doc. And like, hopefully it's not an expensive error. Hopefully you can, you know, mess up and learn the lesson in a relatively low cost way. But sometimes that's what it takes. And ideally, like I said, you're avoiding any sort of like huge operational expense in terms of money or time, but it's a good way to learn a lesson. go at the end of each show we're going to ask each guest the same lightning round of questions ready here we go best book you've read in the last six months tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow i just finished it too very very good it's so good a lot of people would say it but it's just so good well worth the plug so i typically will ask next your favorite part about working in ops i'm giving you an honorary working in ops here so favorite part about working in ops I'll twist it a little bit because my title is not conventionally ops, but my favorite part about my career and working in the job that I work in now is that I'll bring a revenue ops perspective into everything that I do and it will make me better at everything that I do. So I, you know, I lead a revenue and go to market team right now. I joined the company that I'm at very early in a marketing position and I had the opportunity to build with a kind of like strategic ops mindset from the ground up because of how impactful I've I've seen it to be. And that's had, you know, a huge benefit on the company and our growth over time. That's a great answer. Flip side, least favorite part about working in ops. I feel like you're nagging people all the time. <laughs> I remember in my first revenue operations job, I remember my boss after some frustrating conversation, my boss telling me, you know, the salespeople are your customers. Just because you're not externally facing doesn't mean you don't have customers. And I was like, wait, I don't want salespeople as my customers. Those sound like terrible customers. <laughs> On the flip <laughs> side, when you can save them time and do something really impactful, it's, there's a huge amount of gratitude and payoff and satisfaction there. No one says they're not tough customers. <laughs> exactly. Right. But that makes it more satisfying when you get Correct. something right. 100%. 100%. Someone who impacted you getting to the job you have today. Oh, gosh. So the newsletter that we talked about, I wrote with a partner that I met on the internet. I was scouring Twitter, like I said, for anyone talking about VC operations. And I came across this tweet that was so perfectly summed up the lack of attention towards operations in VC. And I just reached out to this person and he was like, I'm going to start a newsletter on this next week. Do you want to do it with me? And I was like, you're a complete stranger. Let's do it. <laughs> we started the newsletter, ran it together for 10 months or so. And then he introduced me to the founders of Sidecar. And that's why I have the job. There you go. That's a great story. All right. Last one. One piece of advice for people who want to have your job someday. Oh my gosh, I hate this, but like use Twitter. I don't, I, maybe it's something else besides Twitter now. I have a love hate relationship with it, and Twitter's a weird place these days. But as someone who lives far, far outside of Silicon Valley or any other major tech hub, using Twitter to build relationships with people in the industry and then actually using it to like write out my thoughts and opinions about VC operations or anything else kind of like attracted people towards me that were interested in similar things and got people excited about the way that I think. So maybe it's threads now or something else, TikTok, just share your thoughts online somewhere and it will bring you to people who appreciate the same things that you do. 
Thanks so much to Hallie for joining us on this week's episode of Operations. If you liked what you heard, make sure you're subscribed to our show so you get a new episode in your feed every other Friday. If you prefer video, we have a brand new amazing YouTube channel. Search for Operations with Sean Lane on YouTube and you can subscribe there as well. If you learned something from Hallie today or from any of our guests, make sure you leave us a six-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, six-star reviews only. All right, that's going to do it for me. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by La Hacienda. La Hacienda is a place for great ideas and creative innovation. Branding, creative strategy, media production, you name it. I went to the team at La Hacienda when I was looking to give a facelift for our brand here on the Operations Podcast, and they hit it out of the park. La Hacienda's goal is to make impactful online and brand presences for their clients. So if you're in need of a full-service digital creative agency, check out lahacienda.media today.